and welcome to another episode of A Flat Pack History of Sweden. This time, episode 20, Viking Sites in Stockholm. Yes, exciting. We are finally in our flat. The place that will be our home. And therefore also the place that we will record the podcast. Yes, we don't have a proper setup yet, so we're just recording on a random table, so it might not sound entirely 100% right now, but probably the next episode after this, maybe the one after that, we'll have all of our proper equipment and setup and things sent over from the UK, and then we'll be ready to rock and roll. But today we've got a slightly different episode for you today. This is the first opportunity where we've had a chance to actually utilise our location of being in Sweden. Yes, it's really exciting that we've been able to go out and explore our local area and really use the fact that now we're in Sweden, we're in the place that we talk about on the podcast. Yeah, in fact, we've made use of the fact that we've moved to this new place today, as we've said, and we're getting to know our new home city and the whole area around Stockholm that's really rich in history. But before we get into all of that, we should probably start with this week's Swedish phrase. We should. This week's phrase is a little less common. It is very much an established Swedish phrase. It's just not something you might hear every day. But I heard it on Swedish TV the other day, and it reminded me of how funny it is. Cool. So what is it? Alltid något så fan när Now, literally, that translates to, that's always something said the devil when he saw Elmol. Yeah, that doesn't really mean anything, as far as I can tell. <laughs> no, well, maybe a bit of a uh, bit of context first. Elmol uh, is a small town around 10,000 inhabitants in west-central Sweden. Um, if you go sort of north and inland from Gothenburg, you'll get to Elmol. I've never been there, so I should stress that I'm not speaking from personal experience, but rather from the sort of general perception of the place. Elmol is like the every town. Nothing famous come from there. It's not located anywhere famous. It's not big, but it's also not a tiny village. It might not be great, but it's certainly not awful. It's a generic Swedish town. Okay, so like Hemel Hempstead in the UK. Yeah, maybe. So in the phrase, that's always something, said the devil when he saw Elmol, Elmol refers to how, well, it's at least something. You know, it's not great, but it could be worse. The devil rocked up and he wasn't impressed, but he also wasn't disappointed. In English, maybe we would have just said, well, that's at least something. True, but the Swedes like to get the devil involved in their swearing phrases and everyday phrases, so I guess it makes sense that it's the devil talking about Ormol. Yeah, for some reason, I don't really know why, uh, but references to the devil features a lot, especially in our curse words, but yeah, also in phrases like this. Uh, I don't know why. I did some research on the phrase, and apparently the earliest known reference of it being said dates back to the 1800s. There's a written record of the phrase being printed in the local newspaper, actually, in Elmol in 1846. Uh, I guess that's a bit of a self-deprecating sense of humor that the local paper uses the phrase about the town it writes about. And that's 
quite a long time ago as well. That's over 150 years ago. So it's quite impressive that the phrase has been around that long and in written context. Um, isn't there's a there's a film that we won't say the full name of that's based in Ormal, which includes a curse word in the title. Um, there, there is indeed. It's an excellent film. It's called Effing Ormal um, by Swedish director Lukas Modison. It's going on 30 years now since its release, but it was a really seminal piece when he made it in uh, in the 90s. Maybe because it's one of the first films to feature a lesbian romance with teenagers. It's a beautiful, beautiful story of coming of age and growing up in a small town. Again, in, in Elmål. So Elmål, for being a small town, gets uh, quite a lot of press, yeah. Yeah, well, and it's now no longer just Ormol because it's now got all this press. It's a sort of a paradox that because it is so normal, it's now not normal because it's known as being normal. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, if we have any listeners from Ormol or listeners that are familiar with the place, get in touch if you have more information about the phrase. How does Elmel feel about uh, being used in this context? Also, let us know when the last time the devil visited. Yeah, we should probably now get on to this main episode. And it's very exciting because, like we said, we're getting to know our new hometown city, the capital of Sweden. And as before, we've really been struck by how much history is really just out and about. So this episode is sort of to talk about and show you how easily accessible some of this history is. Indeed, as those of you who follow us on Facebook and Twitter might have seen, we've been posting photos of places that we've passed just when we've been out and around in Stockholm. And it's really great to just explore a bit, uh, or at least as much as time permits, what with the move and starting new jobs and everything else that comes with everyday life. Yeah, and the fact you can see traces of history all around you in your everyday life is not unique to Stockholm or Sweden in general. Uh, that's true pretty much of everywhere. But Sweden in general has done a very good job at preserving physical remains of history. And it's not all just the stuff that you would expect of being in the capital city, the royal palace and various town squares. But it's also the everyday stuff that you would see literally just walking down your street. Yeah, that's not to say that stuff hasn't gotten lost or that history and archaeology uh, has been ignored when people wanted to build new things or that during certain periods in recent history, preserving the past wasn't seen as something important. But still, if you live in Sweden or if you're here visiting and you just walk around, you will quite easily stumble on physical remains of the country's past. And that's exactly what we've done for this episode. We've left the warmth of our flat where we normally record or we'll be planning to record our future episodes. And we've grabbed a microphone and gone out to record in the outdoors. And this episode, we've been to three separate sites on the island of Leidinger, where we see physical remains from the Viking Age. So let's hand over to past Orsa and past Chris, and they'll tell us about these three amazing places. All right, so we've headed outside for the first time in the history of this podcast. Yeah, it's a flat pack history of Sweden on the road. 
On the road and in nature, so we're out on the island of Lidingö, it's an island just east of central Stockholm. Uh, Stockholm, if you look on a map, is all islands and peninsulas, and uh, this is one of the islands, yeah, just a little bit east of the city centre. And it's quite a big one, 40-odd thousand people live here, something like that. Yeah. Um, and back in the day, lots of Vikings used to live around here, which is the reason why we're out and about. Yeah, but this isn't even that much of a famous place for remains of the Viking period or ancient remains in general. We picked this place because it's a good example of just what you can find out and about in nature everywhere in uh, in Sweden, or at least in many areas of Sweden. History really is all around us. You may or may not be able to hear cars and things going past, but I'm sure people understand that we're out and about and uh, we're in the real world, not stuck in our living room recording. It's a really great day to be out and about as well. We're in the mid late October and the trees have all gone a lovely uh, yellow red color and it's very autumnal a bit chilly I should have brought gloves I can feel like my fingers are getting a bit cold and I'm quite jealous because we're standing opposite a pizza place and people are coming out with very nice looking pizzas so that shows you how completely normal this location this first location where we are actually is because yeah it's just on a suburban semi-rural road opposite a pizza place and we have our very first thing that we're gonna talk to you about because we are standing right in front of a rune stone yeah we're standing in front of a rune stone and like also said this isn't a very special national heritage site with ticketing and entrances and a museum this is literally we're standing on the side of this road on a little bit of a hill and there's this amazing red colored runestone drawn right into the side of the hill here and it's uh, really impressive it's got loads of runic scripts and it's got a little picture of it so also how about you tell us what it looks like it's not a freestanding runestone this is this has been carved into rock on this little hill you can sort of tell that they've removed a bit of the of the grass and soil to the point that they got to the actual rock and then carved this in it's about one meter times a meter and a half yeah it's about a meter and a half tall and about a meter wide i guess i can only imagine that they've since uh, filled this in because the red color is quite bright that might have been something that's been uh, restored a bit later on but it really you can very clearly see the fine detailed work here there it's what looks like a snake head up there across there's something i think the snake or the dragon or whatever it is is eating its own tail i think it looks like but it's got a big fancy eye and yeah there's it's um there's sort of a it looks like a circle of the runic script but then the circle comes in so it looks a bit more like a pretzel i guess and it's got the dragon coming in and out of the pretzel in the middle. We will, of course, put a picture of this uh, on our social media so that you can uh, see what we're talking about as well. Uh, I've done a bit of research on the local council website about this, and it was apparently discovered in 1984, and it's believed to be dated from the 11th century. Archaeologists can see 
traces of this, what we talked about in our last episode, this overlapping of Christianity and ancient Norse belief, because there is a cross in amongst the carvings here, but there are also symbols that are more related to ancient Norse mythologies. Yeah, it's really exciting. And there's a plaque that we'll go and read from, which is in Swedish, so we'll sort of translate it live as we go. So it might not be the most word-for-word translation, but we're used to that with our Swedish phrases of the week. So um, it's quite exciting. I don't know if you can hear, there's lots of leaves on the floor. So we're walking over this little hill to get to this board, which we're now standing in front of. So what does it say, Orsa? First of all, I should uh, give credit to the local council, leading a stad and the Riksantikvarieämbetet, the National Heritage Board, because they're the ones that put this uh, board up. So the rune carvings was, as I said, discovered in the spring of 1984. It's the second known rune carving on this island. Uh, so you need to look into where the other one is. The inscription was carved in honor of someone called Stan. And it's believed that maybe Stan lived here on leading around about the, the late Viking period. And the the scripture, what the runes actually say is Osmund carved these stones in the honor of Stan, his grandfather and father of Sibbe and Gerbjörn, a grand memorial to a good man. That's quite nice and impressive. That's a very, uh, I, would, I wouldn't mind having that on my gravestone or something similar. So they've done a good job. And yeah, the fact that it's still here about a thousand years later is really impressive. Don't know if there's anything more that's super important on this plaque, um, but what it does say is that the hill in front of us, the small hill that we're now going to start walking up, is actually covered in small graves. So there's around 50 graves up on this little hill, uh, climbing up as we go again. It's very exciting, trying not to fall over, and it's quite windy. I don't know if you can hear that. Um, but yeah, so there's about 50 graves on here, but they're all underneath the ground they're not uh, they're not uncovered and so we're just looking for the mounds and you can see across this tiny little hill here uh, lots of mounds and raised pieces of earth and stone which are the graves yeah it's a hill and then you can see like little almost yeah the little mounds sticking up it's like a huge you know what bubble wrap looks like yeah it looks quite a lot like green bubble wrap with all these uh brown leaves on the top as well so it's and it's nice and sunny as well uh, it feels very cold it is quite cold but it is very sunny it's quite extraordinary to think that we are standing on top of the graves of people who passed away yeah over a thousand years ago and what this place must have meant to them and what their lives was like out here on the island yeah and i think the plaque said that They'd investigated and uh, sort of uh, excavated three of the graves, but I don't think they found anything super important. But yeah, well, I think this is probably enough for this place. Uh, so I think we should go find somewhere else. Yeah, pause, and then we'll be with you again when we've walked a little bit further on this isle- lovely island. So we're at the second site for today, which is the Rudbora Röset, which is a stone circle, probably about 15 metres in diameter, so probably about 
25 30 meters across because it's not entirely circular um but it's a yeah it's a stone circle which would have been used as a burial and it's not a stone circle like stonehenge or alastaina which we talked about previously but it's just sort of the ground is covered by stones in this circle shape and it probably comes up to um, about your waist or your knee in height um, all these stones some of them are quite big and I definitely wouldn't be able to pick them up by myself and some of them are, are smaller and they're all made out of what looks like the local stone and rock here and placed around in this circle in the Viking times or potentially older. Yeah so this one was a bit of more of a trek to get to than the rune carving. We walked into uh, a neighborhood of houses and then into a park and then now we've walked up what was quite a steep hill. We're standing quite uh, quite high up now, surrounded by lovely spruce trees in a bit of a clearing in a forest. Yeah, it was, very, it was quite steep and you had to climb over a lot of rocks and boulders and lots of roots from all these trees that have been around here. And there's a lot of wood that's lying around on the ground and it seems like the local scout group has been here to set up um, some bivouacs and some shelters nearby. Um, There's quite a few of these tall trees that have looked like they've collapsed in the last couple of years or so. But the actual stone circle itself is surrounded by about 15 to 20 trees that are about probably about five meters in height so they're really quite tall um, and they're starting to drop lots of leaves and twigs and things now it's autumn and all the lovely colorful leaves that are around us and again thanks to the local council and the national heritage fund for yeah, keeping the area accessible but also for putting up a bench and a very nice little plaque where or you can read a bit about what this uh what this place was and uh, there's a very helpful sketch where they've sort of outlined what this would have looked like in in Viking times where this would have looked more like in like an igloo uh, there have been more of a dome shape of stones whereas now what we can see is just flat yeah so it looks like a collapsed igloo made out of stones but do you want to i think this sketch is quite fun so do you want to describe what's happening in these three pictures so there's a little drawing of a man that's uh, measuring out from the middle point and out he's measuring out and putting a the outer circle of of stones then there's what looks like a burial chamber in the middle and it sort of filled it filled the circle in with stones and then the on the final picture the man is just building it higher and higher so that it it comes up to look like this dome yeah so he's covered the chamber that he's put in the middle and then yeah built this igloo on top well i hope he wasn't alone though this little man there's just one man in the in the sketch but i i hope he at least got some mates because these stones are huge i hope he at least got some mates around to help him yeah i don't think it would be possible just for one person to do this it would take a long time so this plaque is here telling us about that it was used during the viking times but it was also could be potentially a lot older than that couldn't it yeah so it it says according to the plaque that's been put up that uh, potentially this could date back all the way to the bronze age period and that in fact the vikings reused an older uh, burial site when uh, when they came around 
in the grand scheme of things closer to our day this place was excavated in 1925 and there were some interesting finds glass beads was found here a sort of a brooch that people in uh, the iron age and viking period used to keep their clothes up they apparently found uh, parts of a bronze scale and some nails and little bits and bobs like that the glass beads could kind of lead us to believe that those were sacrificial gifts so people were buried here and then given nice glass beads uh, to take with them into the next life well they could have just been this person's favorite glass bead like all archaeology nobody knows um yeah so it's not just a stone circle but it's actually all of these actual archaeological evidence and finds that we can link to this site as well which is a good link from both the grave itself and the practical remains behind but yeah so i think this has been a good visit to this place it's a very it's a lovely area i can i can understand why people throughout history picked this as an as a ceremonial place we're we're up the top of uh, quite a quite a steep hill so got a nice view it's very nice and quiet it's a serene place it's quite steep down on all sides so yeah feels feels a bit mighty to be up this high but uh, yeah so we'll leave it from this second site and then we'll see what else we can come up with So it's another overcast Sunday on the island of Liedinger and we've come back for a second time because Orso was very clever enough to be able to find the second runestone. Indeed, I've done a bit of research during the week and I think we've located it up this little hill. Uh, again, we're sort of quite just in the middle of a normal suburban scenery. You'll probably hear some cars and a bus. Yeah, this is actually a bit of a main road, so let's walk up the hill. So now we're at the top of this very small hill, still with the cars and buses and things in the background. But yeah, so this is really quite exciting. It's basically half a runestone and it's relatively small because the other side of the runestone, there's an anthill almost the same size as the runestone itself. It's a very big anthill to be fair. Um, but also, would you like to try and explain what this looks like? Yeah, so there's a reason that there's only half a runestone, and that simply is that they haven't discovered the top half. The bottom half was found sometime in the 1800s. Uh, we don't have an exact date, but we know for sure that by 1847, it had been discovered, because in 1847, it's mentioned in a document that described what the parish out here on the island looked like and contained. And um, what does it actually look like today now it's cut in half? So yeah, like you like you said, it's about the size of a large anthill, maybe a metre tall. And it's not unlike the first runestone where we were last weekend, the writing isn't as clear. Um, I, my guess is that that's because it hasn't been filled in. Yeah, filled in in the modern day by people who want to restore it. This one is less of an attraction, so it's not as uh, not as widely advertised or as easy to find as the other one and the other one has therefore been filled in by some restoration work or something so this one's slightly harder to see but you can still see it in the pictures but what can we actually see it's a bit confusing 
So we see again this sort of snake-like, we can just about make out the head of a snake that bites the snake's tail, and then it goes down and round, and then probably would have continued up, it comes back round and up again in a sort of uh, infinity symbol kind of shape. The writing is now faded, so we see these runes in a sort of vague orangey colour. You can't really see it from a distance, but once you're, you're, once you're up close, we're standing maybe two metres away, and it's still quite easy to see that it looks like some sort of runestone. And this is, again, looks like it's sort of the general local rock. It's very whitey grey rock, so now that the writing has faded and the pictures have faded, it's, it's more difficult to read than the one that's been restored. So what else did you find out after you found out the location of the runestone? What actually did you find out about the runestone itself? So again, discovered uh, sometime in the 1800s and for, for many years it was just kept on the farm where they found it. So they found it apparently whilst working the land and they just got it up and put it next to their farm. But then in 1943, it was moved here uh, to where it stands today and made more of a public feature. The local council took it over. Again, there's a little bench here. They've put up a sign where you can read a little bit about it. Whilst the rest of Europe was involved in World War II, Sweden was busy moving and putting up runestones in different locations. So, At least the local council out here was busy uh, moving runestones. Sweden was pretty busy with World War II as well, but for, for a couple of days in 1943 they had time to move a runestone. Which is all good for us because it's much easier to find it here on this near a crossroads on one of the main roads on Leading Ur. But like all good runestones, archaeologists and historians have been able to interpret at least uh, what the remaining half of this runestone actually says, and it's quite similar to the previous one as well, isn't it? So, yeah, again, because there's only half of it left, we can obviously only see half of the writing. But the writing we can see says, Kåre and Ingjald and... And then it's... We can't see the rest. In the honour of Björn, their father... And then we can't see the rest. God help. So there's three sections that we can see. So it's two people... Cora, Ingeld, and then presumably at least one other sibling raising this for Bjorn, their father, and then God help, something, something, something. So that has left the historians to come to the conclusion that this was after at least some sort of Christian presence was in Sweden, whether or not that was just a temporary visitor who managed to convert this Bjorn, or after Sweden had been fully Christianized. So that dates this runestone to some time in the 11th century. Yeah, like the early 1000s, some sort of time around that. They've also come to this conclusion because most runestones that have been found in this area date from the 11th century. This area around Stockholm and then both north and south around the Lake Mälaren is one of the richest areas in Sweden when it comes to runestones and ancient remains from from that period. 
Yeah, that's very nice. Uh, I don't know if you can hear the person who's doing roller skiing along the uh, pavement next to us. Um, one of the very, very Nordic thing that's happening. Basically skiing on roller skates with the poles. Um, so that's very cool. We do it to practice our skiing before the snow arrives. So at the moment, we're in late October. It's snowing in sort of the top third of Sweden, the most northern part. But the snow hasn't reached Stockholm yet. It's probably at least a month away but you want to be ready for the skiing season so then you get out on your roller skis i like you said we do this when the last time you skied was about 15 years ago and that was downhill skiing and i don't think you've come within 10 meters of any roller skis before i i don't do cross-country skiing no uh yeah i i i used the plural we because i wanted to include myself in some sort of swedish uh hobby and pastime but no it's very much they other swedes do this yeah luckily you had the fact checker here to correct you from uh, so our listeners weren't being lied to there um and on this plaque it does have a very nice picture of like an artist's impression of a viking bridge and it has four rune stones on each corner of the bridge and it says often rune stones were put up by bridges and alongside roads so yeah because they were meant to be seen they were put up where, where the general public, people who were passing by, could, could see them and be like, ah, Bjorn's dead and his uh, sons have erected this rune stone for him. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's a bit like um, the main roads going into Rome. Uh, back in the Roman Republic and Roman Empire, they had lots of tombs alongside them because partly you had to be buried outside of the city, but also you wanted, yeah, you wanted someone to walk past your tomb and be like, wow, that's a really cool guy. He's got a huge tomb. Yeah, we should clarify, though, that as opposed to that, you're not always buried next to your runestone. The runestones aren't connected to a grave as such. They might have been erected in the memory of someone as a memorial, but that person wasn't necessarily buried where the runestone is. No, I think it's all a matter of a personal decision. A um, bit like the first runestone we saw in this area, that was actually near a grave site, but we don't know if the person who was depicted in the runestone was buried at that grave site. But um, apart from that, I think before these ants try and drive us away, it's probably time to say goodbye from this third site on the lovely island of Liedinger. Anything else to add? No, just that it is really spectacular how this is all around us, how we are standing next to this runestone that someone carved more than a thousand years ago and it's still with us and we don't have to pay an entrance fee, it's not in a museum, it's just out and about next to a road and some guys doing roller skiing. And therefore, if you are in Stockholm and you have two hours free, it's quite easy to find these runestones on the island of Liedinger, which is really close to Stockholm city central. So yeah, do give it a visit if you'd like. And of course, we will put pictures of this runestone and maybe the anthill up on our social media pages. So yeah, back to future Chris and Orsa in the studio. Thank you, past Chris and past Elsa. Through the magic of podcast making, we're now back in our flat. Yeah, it's much warmer in here, but it was super fun to be outside and uh, walk around the island of Leedinger. It really was. Uh, we did it over the course of two weekends. So what would you say? Did you have a favourite among the places we went to? I really liked the first one because of just how big and impressive the runestone was. Do check out our social media to see a picture of it because it's really, really impressive how big it is and how it is just carved into the 
side of this small hill but for location wise i like the middle one the sort of the ig the collapsed igloo type grave because it was at the top of this hill and you were the highest point for miles around and seeing all the trees and everything i think that was really fun in just the terms of the monument or the history fitting into its landscape and you could see why that site had been important to people through history as well there was something quite serene about being up on that hill and surrounded by the forest yeah um definitely and i liked how the third one wasn't complete and that it was broken in half and you can just see how history will slowly get forgotten if you don't start talking about it or look after it because this stuff is literally disappearing in front of us and it also reminded me of how this is constantly evolving because i remember i was standing there thinking well, they might discover the top half at some point. I mean, that sort of thing happens all the time. It might be that, you know, in two years' time, someone's redoing their basement and doing some digging, and all of a sudden, the top half appears 250-odd years after they found the bottom half. It just reminds you that stuff like that is possible, and we keep finding remains from people that have been here before us. Yeah, there's always more to find out, which is really good. I'm hoping that there's lots of amateur archaeologists going around the island trying to find that second half. But yeah, based on our experience of that, I think we can pretty much promise that we'll be out on location and recording stuff again and again. Definitely, because yeah, there is something magical about physically being in touch with history especially these periods of ancient history that we've talked about so far in the podcast, they can feel very removed from us and almost like they happened on another planet. But then when you go out and you see a runestone that's just there in your hometown, you're reminded that that's not the case. History isn't something removed from us. It's not something that happened to some other species of people on another planet. History is about people like us who lived in the same world we do. And in this case, they lived in our hometown. This was their hometown as well. Yeah, and that's the really cool thing about the runestones is that they're actually telling you stories about real people. You know, the sons of various men who have raised their runestone or thanking the wives of people. And so, yeah, there really is that physical connection to real, actual people. Exactly. And in this case, like I said, it's about people who live exactly where we live, in the same city. And since we went to these places and I did this recording, I've been thinking a lot about that, about how Vikings, uh, which is something that we sometimes imagine as this almost make-believe thing, these made-up characters in superhero movies, that's not the case at all. They actually lived in the same place I do. They went about their business, lived their everyday life, walked the same ground as I walk and where I live and go about my business today. And it's extraordinary that thanks to the fact that they left behind a lot of these physical traces like the huge runestones and the graves, we can see that on our day-to-day -day walk around and be reminded of how we're connected to the history and their lives that were not too different from us so many years ago. 
And that's why I think it's so amazing that we have these historical places, not just the big ones like Stonehenge or big castles or whatever, but these smaller ones that we've visited, like the runestone that's just opposite a pizza place. That's just there to remind us that we live our lives on a continuum and that while I'm getting my pizza here, a thousand years ago, someone made a memorial to their dead relative on that exact same spot as I'm getting my pizza. Yeah, and we really should thank again the National Heritage Board and all the various council authorities and people like that who have spent a lot of their time putting up these plaques and good signs to make sure that even if you are in the middle of the forest or walking around in these rural and suburban areas you can still find these traces of history that are right near you yeah and obviously that costs money someone needs to clear snow away to make it accessible in winter time and uh, someone paid to put the plaque up and on that first runestone uh, we went to it's um, it was clear that that had been filled in to make the writing stand out bigger uh, all of that costs money and it's a privilege to live in a country where we can spend money on that. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I think that's probably it for talking about these three sites. But do check out the island of Leading Earth if you're in Stockholm or you're visiting Stockholm. And we can pretty much start to begin the process of wrapping up the Viking period. So we'll start that next week in a sort of covering everything type of episode yeah as is always the case with these periods of history there's no exact way of saying when something began and when something finished but we feel like we've spent a few episodes now talking about the vikings and it's time to slowly start moving along this doesn't mean that we feel we've covered everything that is to say about the Viking period, or even everything that happened in Sweden during the Viking period, as there was so much stuff that was going on, but rather to say that we've scratched the surface and given you the really important stuff that you definitely need to know, so when we go on to talk about the first proper Swedish kings, you'll understand the background and their origins and where they came from. Of course, there are so many other great podcasts out there that focus solely on the Viking period and give it that real huge amount of information, not just on Sweden, but also on Norway, Denmark, Iceland, and east of the Baltic. So there's so much more out there for you to listen to if you want to expand just from Sweden. Definitely. So next week, we'll be tying up any loose ends we feel there are and anything we feel like we haven't mentioned about Sweden during the Viking Age, but we should. And then we'll start looking forward and see what happens next in the history of Sweden. Exactly, and see where that exciting journey takes us. So... As always, please do follow us on social media. Um, I know we say it a lot, but this is one of those very particular episodes where there's going to be a lot of really cool images posted about what we've seen in today's episode. So do give us a follow or just even just check in and have a look for this time, even if you're not on. I think certainly Twitter and probably on Facebook as well, you don't actually have to be a member to look and see what we've posted. So do just search for us on Google and find our Twitter that way. You don't have to sign up. You can just have a look at the great images that we found from today. Yeah, because for this episode, uh, we think it really adds value to see pictures of what we're talking about. 
And also, if you've enjoyed what you're listening to, don't forget to leave a review on whatever platform you listen to us on. It helps us get noticed and helps more people find us. And let us know what you thought of this first out and about recording. Should we do more? Is there a specific place you think we should visit and record from? We can't promise that we'll travel that extensively at the moment, <laughs> considering global pandemic and everything. But we're always open for suggestions. Exactly. Maybe not the very, very north of Sweden quite just yet, but uh, certainly in the Stockholm area, we've got a big list, um, but we may miss stuff out. So yeah, if you're around here and have some good ideas, do let us know. But for now, it's bye-bye. Hey, doll.